You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Yeah, hey everybody, we are moving through, as you can see, the book of 1 John. Thanks for being on the journey with us. And our scripture reading today is going to be from 1 John chapter 4. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. Here we go. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you've heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. All God's people said amen to that. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. But we're from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that's the reading of God's word. Uh, once upon a time, I was asked to be a part of an interfaith panel at the University of Texas talking to a bunch of religion students. And I was honored, of course, to participate with a number of other leaders from other faith systems, uh, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu. And I know this kind of sounds like the start of a joke, like, did you hear the one about the Christian pastor? Walked into the room with the Buddhist and the Muslim and the Hindu. Anyway, all right, no joke, but they were all great and kind, and I love my time with them. But the topic of the conversation for that interfaith panel was this, was what do all religions have in common? What do all religions have in common? It was an effort to get people to have peaceful, meaningful dialogue across religious systems, and I appreciated that so much, and we were going back and forth, back and forth, and it was going so well. <laughs> until I casually dropped something that I hoped would stir a little different line of thinking. And I said this, I looked out at the room and I said to everybody in there, I said this, I said, well, I so appreciate and deeply respect each of you and each member of this panel. And I'm happy to talk about all the ways in which our faith systems overlap because they certainly do at a number of points. I want you to hear this tonight. At the core of the Christian faith is something that cannot be reconciled with any other faith which is this, at the core of the Christian faith is the central claim that Jesus Christ himself made, which is that he is God come to save us. He's God come to save us. While we do have some things in common, we are not all the same at the center. Now, I tried to be as kind and as gracious as I could with that statement, maybe even with a smile on my face, but it didn't matter. Uh, the room started to buzz and yeah, it turned against me a little bit. Maybe a lot. You say, well, why did that happen? You know, more going to happen because you were stupid. You said something dumb. You know, you recorded that on purpose. Maybe, maybe not. 
But I think there was something deeper going on in that room. And I think that you know what that thing is and was. I think you know whether you're a Christian or not here today, whether you're a skeptic or you're new or you're kicking tires or someone's druggy here today, we're so glad you're here. But I think you know why people struggled with what I said then and why they still do today. Because I was holding up a problem for and a barrier to Christianity, which is this, the problem of exclusivity. The problem of exclusivity. The problem of exclusivity goes like this. People say, Morgan, how can Christians claim that Jesus is the only way to God? You know, how can Christians possibly claim to be the truth? I mean, come on, Morgan, to to claim to have the truth or to be like the one true faith is something that turns you into a foolish and narrow-minded person at best or an arrogant, judgmental, bigoted person at worst. Morgan, like the book said, you know, religion poisons everything. And if you believe you have the truth, you now become a major barrier to peace and justice in the world. That's the objection. All right. Now let me say something that may surprise you coming from a Christian pastor, which is this. I actually agree with the objection. I agree with the objection. It's like introducing a little tension into the sermon. All right. All right. I agree that religion creates a slippery slope in the human heart towards bigotry and towards hate. And the reason I know this is because I've experienced personally in spades what many of you likely all experienced over this past year. From so many people who call themselves Christians, I have experienced unprecedented name-calling, insults, public shaming because I said something they didn't agree with or I didn't say something they wanted me to and they justified their bad behavior with their faith. I've seen firsthand, I agree with this statement, that exclusive beliefs create a slippery slope in the human heart towards bigotry and hate. Why? Well, it's this. If you're told you have the truth, right? If you're told you have the truth and that you are right, this generally leads to arrogance. This generally leads to looking down on those who don't have the truth and who aren't right like you are. So I agree with our culture's objection to religious exclusivity. And yet, here in 1 John 4, John makes the case that the belief in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ is something you actually need. It's something you need. It's something that can make you more whole, more humble, more loyal, more loving. So on one hand, our culture says, and you know, that believing you have the truth, it's a dangerous thing. And yet... On the other, John says, it's the very thing we need to make us who we were supposed to be all along. How can this be? What are we going to do about the problem? This tension John gives us here. What are we going to do about the problem of religious exclusivity happening right now, today, coming to a nation near you? To rephrase it, if exclusivity can lead to all these problems, what can we do about it? And how can Christianity still maintain its own claim to exclusive truth in a way that makes us more whole, more loving, more humble? What can be done about religious exclusivity? Big question for today. Four potential solutions I'm going to lay out for you. I'm going to tell you up front, the first three can't work, don't work. The fourth one can and will 
I'll be quicker on the first three, longer on the fourth. Here we go. What are we going to do about religious exclusivity? Potential solution number one. We could outlaw religion. We could. We could like make faith itself, religion itself, illegal. You're like that stupid Morgan. This may not be your preferred solution, but I want to promise you something. If you go trolling today through that fountain of human wisdom and compassion known as the comments section of any internet news article, you'll find lots of people who still call for this solution today. Like we should outlaw all religion. That would solve the problem. Or if you, but if you think that sounds good, I want to tell you, you may all due respect humbly take a refresher course in human history. Soviet Russia, communist China, the Khmer Rouge in its own way, Nazi Germany, all attempted to wipe out religion in an effort to keep the state from becoming what the state wanted to become. They got rid of religion because they believed it was that bad and held the nation back. And all those efforts, in case you've forgotten, went really, really bad. Tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people, perhaps, killed in the name of outlawing religion. Alistair McGrath put it like this. He's a Christian philosopher. Quote, the 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest and most distressing paradoxes of human history. That the greatest intolerance and violence of that century were practiced by those who believed that religion caused intolerance and violence. Oh, but a strange thing happened on the way. This whole outlaw plan backfired, and here's what I mean. Look at China today. What happened when the Chinese government outlawed Christianity? Oh, Christianity only went underground. Christianity only became far stronger, and China will soon, most likely, if it hasn't already, become the largest Christian population in the world in the world. If there are half a billion Chinese Christians in 20 years, that will change the world. That'll change the world. And this isn't what they believe, isn't a thin, secular form of the Christian faith. This is a robust, orthodox, miracle-believing, charismatic, Holy Ghost-claiming form of it. Here's the point. Calls for religion to be outlawed will never work because faith in something isn't going away. Why not? Look what our text says. It says, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Let me ask you this. Why doesn't John say, hey, y'all, test the prophets. Hmm? Test the teachers. Instead, he says, test the spirits. Why? Because he knows, and you ought to know as well, that behind every system of thought is a larger spiritual force, a larger spiritual influence. What's John doing? He's simply channeling a basic, core, fundamental Bible belief that everyone, every human heart goes looking for something to worship in search of ultimate meaning to provide answers for who you are, why you are here. We go looking for that through the worship of entertainment, the worship of sports, the worship of media, the worship of politics, the worship of self. And so this passage tells us that there are, there are many false truth claims. Behind each false claim is a spiritual force. And that truth claims, false ones, are going to be made nonetheless, no matter if religions are outlawed or not. Faith in something and in specific faith in the supernatural, it's always been a part of the human condition. It always has been, always will be. Outlawing religion will never work 
in some cases, it only makes it grow stronger. Number two, second potential solution to the problem of exclusivity. We could not outlaw religion. We could just like soften it, weaken it, relativize it. And while this one seems so nice, right? Oh, it seems so nice. This one seems so loving. This one seems so gracious. Because if you say towards other faiths that all religions are valid, it sounds nice. Oh, but hear me out for a second. This one cannot be true because it contains within its own argument the seed of its own demise. Let me try to show you. Here's the relativized religion argument. It says this. Each religion only sees part of the truth, but none can see the whole truth. How many of you heard that before? Are you here all the time? I mean, three people. Awesome. Okay, great. <laughs> we do live in the United States, right? Man, movies. Uh, you, and I'm going to give you an example here of what you, uh, how commonly you hear this phrase articulated, this idea lived out. And if you've heard my example before... You have. And as long as professors on college campuses keep using it in their intro to philosophy and religion classes, I'm going to keep using this example as well. All right. The example you probably heard goes like this. There were once several blind men in India who came upon an elephant. And each of them began to touch the elephant to try to guess what it was. Ah, said the first blind man who grabbed the elephant by the trunk. This creature is a snake. No, said the second blind man who grabs the leg and holds on to it. This creature uh, is actually a, uh, is a, is a tree trunk. This creature is a tree trunk. No, you're both wrong, said the third blind man who runs his hand along the side of the elephant. This, this thing is a house we have come into. See, it's flat and strong and thick. And the person telling the story concludes like this. In the same way that the blind man could only grasp part of the elephant due to their blindness, so they're all partly right and partly wrong. Faith and religion work the same way. Everyone's partly right, everyone's partly wrong, and no one has the truth. All right. Now, someone named Leslie Newbegin, he was a British missionary to India, and he heard this example over and over and over, and it drove him nuts. People saying to him, how can you as a Christian claim you have the truth? All religions, you know, are like the blind men. And then one day, it hit him. The only way you could know that those blind men cannot see the whole picture is if the person telling the story can see the whole picture. The only way you can say for certain that no one can grasp the whole truth is if you personally grasp the whole truth. The point is to claim that no one has all the truth is to claim to have all the truth. He put it like this, quote, there is an appearance of humility in the protestation that the truth is much greater than any one of us can grasp, but if this is used to invalidate all claims to discern the truth, it is in fact an arrogant claim to a kind of knowledge which is superior to all others. We have to ask, what is the vantage ground from which you claim to be able to relativize, relativize all the absolute claims the scriptures make? People, the point is people try to relativize religion because it sounds nice and people believe it because it makes them feel nice. But I want to tell you, it cannot be true. Third solution to the problem of exclusivity. We could not just outlaw it, relativize it. We could, number three, we could try to privatize it. Okay, privatize it, and it sound, that argument sounds like this, quote, you know, it's like fine to have your own religious beliefs, but don't bring them into the public square and argue for them there. How many of you have heard this one before? 
be a few of you. All right. Now, someone who's articulated this really prominently is a philosopher by the name of Richard Rorty. Not Richard Rorty, Catholic guy, but Richard Rorty. And if he were listening to this, he'd say, whoa, hang on a minute, y'all. I'm not trying to impose my religious views on you. Uh, I'm just a pragmatist. I'm interested in finding solutions culturally that work. I may have a religious viewpoint, I may not, but whatever it is, I'm not gonna try to impose my view on you. I'm just trying to get us all to move forward together, and the only way you can do that is if you check your views at the door because your views are based on faith and you can't prove them. Now, what we, and what we have to do is look at the problems in society, find practical solutions that work for everyone, not just solutions that come from your faith. But I want to tell you, that's an impossible thing to do, to check your stuff at the door. Haven't you ever been to a neighborhood HOA meeting? <laughs> Those things can get wild. Good luck telling everybody to keep their faith at the door. Why? Because when you come out into the public sphere, it's impossible to leave behind your religious views. Let me give you one quick example. Let's look at marriage laws, divorce laws. Is it possible to make marriage laws apart from a specific worldview? If you think, as most of our country does today, that the purpose of marriage is primarily for the happiness and emotional fulfillment of the adults, then you'll make divorce laws very easy, right? But if you think, as much of the rest of the world does, that marriage is for the benefit of children and for the benefit of society, that the family is more important than the individual, then you make marriage laws super difficult. The point is, in the simple case of divorce laws, you can't make laws that you think will work for everyone apart from your deeply held beliefs about what you believe it means to be human. Why should, I'll ask this, why should your individualistic views about the supremacy of the individual, especially in a land of growing immigrants, trump the viewpoint that the family is more important? See? The point is to say that religion ought to be kept out of the public square because it is faith-based and controversial. That idea ought to be thrown out for no other reason than it itself is faith-based and controversial, right? It itself is based on faith and excludes others. All right, here we are. Let's pause and see how we're doing so far. How can we respond to exclusive truth claims like Christianity? First of all, we've seen, well, you know, suggestion we've seen is that you could outlaw religion, but wait, wait, hang on a second. That's exclusive because it says no religion is right, all are wrong. We could try to relativize religion, but that itself is exclusive because that says any religion is wrong. That says it's right. We could try to privatize religion, but that itself is exclusive because it says our view is that no religion should be brought in. That one's right. All the rest are wrong. Here's my point, and I hope I've made it. Everyone, not just Christians, comes to the table with a set of exclusive beliefs. Everyone really is an exclusivist, if you want to call it that, because everyone excludes someone else. So the question is, who isn't? Who has exclusive beliefs we should exclude? That's what every other attempt boils down to. The question is, because everyone including the seeker and the skeptic, has exclusive beliefs and therefore exclusive truth claims, which set, or rather I should ask, whose set of exclusive beliefs can produce loving, sacrificial, inclusive 
reconciled relationships? The answer is Jesus can. Jesus can. Number four, I want to call us to embrace now today the depth of Jesus's unique solution across your friendships, across your, in your marriage, across your family, in our society, in our polarized society, I'm calling us as a church to embrace, number four, Jesus's unique solution. Why is the solution unique? Three reasons. First, it's because the, he's got a unique origin in that he is divine, divine. Let me show you this, verse two. It says, by this, John says, you know the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come has come. Why is this unique? Look at what it tells us. This doesn't say that Jesus was just born into the world like you and me. It says he has come into the world. This presupposes he existed before he got here. This is a claim to divinity, which Jesus himself made many times. And let me show you why this is critical by asking you a question. When you look, when we look at the problems of the world today, the problems our nation faces today, how massive they are, do you really think that a human being alone can solve the world's problems? Do you really think that a single person can make America great? or make any nation great? Can any human's philosophy, college campus, professor, solve the problems that humans have caused? Aren't we all fond of quoting this, usually to justify uh, voting for our own political party? Quote, you can't solve a problem with the same mind that created it. Right, we say this, you can't solve a problem with the same mind that created it. Then how can a human's mind alone solve the fundamental problem about humanity C.S. Lewis showed us, which is this. We all know what we ought to do. We just don't do it. <laughs> we all know what we ought to do. We just don't do it. That's our problem. See, ultimately, for the problem that religious exclusivity presents to us, only a divine solution will work. And that's exactly who Jesus proposes to be. His salvation is not of human origin. No one made him up. He came into our world from the outside. We need an outside solution. We need Jesus. Second, Jesus' solution is unique because of the unique purpose of it in that it's aimed at this crucial word, redemption. Redemption. John says that Jesus came in the flesh. Why is this so important? I want to look just real quick at Eastern faiths for a second. Some say today, the answer to problems is Eastern religion, Eastern faiths. They are a pathway to peace. But Eastern faiths say that suffering and evil are illusions, and to end suffering, you must escape your body, escape the world. But how can escaping a problem fix a problem? It's like when my kids leave the kitchen before the dishes are done. They just leave the mess for someone else, right? Escaping the dishes won't clean the dishes. On the other hand, traditional moralistic religions, they don't say that the flesh is an illusion. They say your flesh is bad. The body is bad. And the goal of your faith is just to live long enough, do enough good to escape the world by performing enough truth in this life. Oh, but Jesus is, hear me, 
purpose is totally different. Yes, there's heaven. Yes, there's a place of peace. But Jesus didn't come to escape from this world. He came to fix and redeem the world. He has come once. He has begun a new kind of kingdom right here in the middle of the old. And he has promised by the proof of his resurrection from the dead that he would return and one day finish the job. See, at the heart of the Christian message is the unique purpose of redemption. Not to look out at the world and condemn it, but to touch it, to transform it. Oh, in the book of Revelation, don't we see God actually restoring creation, new heavens, new earth. The biblical vision shows us what God is interested in doing and why we care about it now. Getting rid of disease, eliminating war, eliminating poverty, reconciling ethnic groups. You say, that sounds good. Yeah, you want those things? Why? Where do you get those ideas from? It's not from an Eastern worldview. Not from traditional moralistic religions where the goal is escape. If you want the worldview that gives you the basis and works now for reconciliation and peace, only the Christian faith gives you the basis for doing so. Vinath Ramachandra, Hindu turned Christian philosopher, says this, Christian salvation lies not in an escape from this world, but in a transformation of this world. You will not find hope for this physical world in any other religious system or philosophy. The biblical vision is unique, and that is why if someone says, surely there is salvation in other faiths, I always ask them, what salvation are you talking about? No faith holds out a promise of eternal salvation for the world like the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ do. What's Jesus' unique origin? Divine. His unique purpose? Redemption. Finally, let's look at his unique method of salvation. I went to lunch not too long ago with a, a skeptic a acquaintance of mine, and he was really struggling over lunch, with this whole idea that John talks about here, with the exclusivity of the Christian faith, like how can Christians claim the right? And he had one objection after another. It was a great conversation until he got to one in specific. He said this, Morgan, I can't stand the Bible. It's hypocritical. Hypocritical. It tells you to be good. God loves good people. And then it shows people doing bad things. Like David kills a man. He commits adultery. Abraham's a polygamist. He lies. Solomon had slaves. Lot did stuff to his, you know, wife. And Christian churches tell their people to be like the people in the stories. And he said, I can't stand it. And I said, ah, oh, there it is. There it is. So I said this, the message, let me do, thank you for the opportunity to clarify something. The message of the Bible isn't that God loves good people. God didn't come for good people. The point of the Hebrew scriptures, Old Testament, is not that God is telling you to live like those people. It's showing you that no matter how bad those people are, how wicked the people are, even who claim to follow him, he is bigger than that. He is greater than that. He loves them anyway. He works with them anyway. And if he worked with that hot mess of a person right there, he'll work with you too. He'll work with you too. See, he loves the bad people. Yeah, so much flash forward to the New Testament. He sent himself, his only son. See, God saves and has always saved by sheer grace alone. And I looked at that man across the table from me right there at 183 and Chewy's. <laughs> and I said this, I said, here then, let me just apply this. Here's what knowing that does for the human heart. 
When you know you are saved by divine, redemptive grace alone, do you know the kind of stuff you can now begin to admit about yourself? Stuff like this. I said, I'm a pastor, right? He said, yeah. I said, that's the deal here. You're coming to me because you think I have some answers. Cool. But I want you to know, because I'm a human, my heart can get incredibly dark too. Though I know Jesus saved me, though I love him with all my heart, yet because I have wanted to be a somebody and I have longed for success, I have overworked myself and neglected my own family and children to do something for God in the name of God and build a name for me in the name of God. And at times, I've been a little dictator in my own church, very church I've called to love and serve. At times, I've cut off arguments from those who oppose me. I justify doing so. That's how dark my heart has been. I could go on. (laughs) So I looked at him, I said, so you may just be a better person than I am. I'm not a Christian because I'm a good person, because I have a good heart, right? God didn't save me because I'm a moral hero. He saved me because I couldn't save myself. And the only difference between us right now for a moment, I hope, is that I've admitted it admitted it. See, In other words, religion always says God loves the good people. But that's not what Jesus in his gospel say. Look at verse 10. This is love. Not that we loved God. That we did it first. That we were good. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This doesn't say God loves the good people because there are no good people. This one this says no one loved God. And what was God's response to our lack of goodness and love? He sent himself in the form of Jesus to suffer for all the bad people. To be abused by all the wicked people to love the unlovable people, which is me and you. Oh, but we don't believe that, do we? We like it, but we don't believe that because we all point to some kind of record to prove we are lovable. Look at my Insta post, right? Look at my grades. Look at how I'm gonna go to church. I went to youth camp this year. They didn't lack a faith, right? I mean, look what I do that my friends are doing or not doing. Look at who I voted for. I'm a good person who voted with the good people for the good party. That is what religion sounds like. All religions sound like that, except for the Christian faith. And I want to tell you, if therefore you claim to follow Jesus, hear me, and the news you watch or the information you read tempts your heart to look down on those who voted that way or who live like that, if it divides the world into the good and the bad and the good, good people like you are in and the bad people are then like them are out and you believe that you have not done what John says here you haven't tested the spirit behind that and so if you feel your heart going towards labeling that group as bad evil unworthy of salvation oh but you are the problem in them it's you you haven't gone far enough with your christian faith because the spirit of religion says I'm good, you're bad, I'm in, you're out. But the spirit of the Christian faith says this, Romans 3, there are none righteous, no, not one. None of us have loved him. But despite that, he loved us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved who? A hero like me, a moral exemplar like me. Oh, a voting right kind of person like me. No, a wretch a wretch like me. Jesus came and he lived and he died in our place. So non-loving, exclusive non-performers of the truth can now be included and saved by radical, undeserved grace.
How do I get it? Yeah, verse three says, here's how you get it. Every spirit which does not confess Jesus is simply not from God. The key is to confess Jesus as God and Lord, to take him as savior. And when it does this, when you do this, it means you're bringing into yourself, my last thought, a kind of permanent humility into the center of yourself. If you're still thinking, Morgan, that sounds nice. There's no way around it, right? But if you say Jesus is really God, aren't you like just looking, you're just like trumping other people's faith systems. Like yours was a prophet, yours was a teacher, ours is God, right? Won't that lead to exclusivity and looking down on other people, right? Won't that lead to arrogance? Now listen, I understand the thought, but the fact is in human history, it didn't. It didn't. When Christianity was first born directly in response to the bodily resurrection of Jesus, it was in the middle of Greco-Roman society. And one of the great paradoxes of human history is that their religious society was totally relativistic. Said There are lots of gods. There's a God for everything. A God of the unknown God, you know, Acts 17. Oh, but then Christianity comes along and says, no, Jesus is Lord of all. There are no, there's no other name under heaven by which people can be saved. And that seems so exclusive. So paganism, inclusive, Christianity, exclusive except the simple fact of history was that Christians themselves were executed in staggering numbers by inclusive paganism and Christians themselves created the most overwhelmingly inclusive society. The Greeks and the Romans, they didn't mix rich and poor. The Christian church did. The Jews didn't mix the races. Ethnic groups, Christians did. So why would an exclusive belief that Jesus Christ is God lead to breathtaking inclusivity? And the answer is, to use the skeptic's phrase, think, think. If Jesus really is the son of God and he's not just a man, but he's divine, then in him, ultimate spiritual reality has been shown to us. God has showed us what his cards look like and they look like Jesus. What is ultimate reality, spiritually speaking? God comes as a poor man, identifies with the poor, and he dies on a cross as both an enemy of religion and an enemy of the state for people who don't love him. And he cries out as he's being crucified, my God, would you forgive them? Would you accept them? And how then, therefore, could this not change you? How could you be cruel to anyone anymore? How could you curse people online on social media anymore? You couldn't do it. And the early Christians couldn't do it either. And not just because they didn't have the internet. All right. It's a great irony. Radical inclusivity led to unbelievable exclusion and violence. And yet the most exclusive claim that Jesus was God led to humble love and acceptance of those who even hated them. Friends, that is ultimate spiritual reality. That's the gospel, and this is how we are called to live. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.